That was British girl group Eternal's song, Just a Step from Heaven, released back in 1994. And it would go on and chart on the UK singles charts at number 8, the UK dance charts at number 12, and even in the United States under the bubbling under R&B hip-hop songs at number 15. And it just so happens to have been written by our guest today, Shepard Solomon. Hi, my name is James Rodriguez Horton, the host of The Original Doll. On The Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it. We go behind the scenes and learn about all of these creatives and these great stories about the evolutions of songs. And at the same time, we give back to charity. So for every question a guest answers, we get items donated to help out women in domestic abuse shelters, homeless LGBT plus teens, and more. For more information, find me on Instagram, the.original.doll. And I wanna give a big shout out to our Patreon followers. Thank you so much for those who don't know about Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you're help able to keep this free and open for all. And we're going to give a big shout out to all of the listeners worldwide. I've received so many messages from all of people from Poland, Moldova, South Africa, uh, Canada, and so many other amazing places. So thank you so much. And this starts our Shepherd Solomon week. We're going to be going through Shepherd's work with Eternal, S Club 7, the Spice Girls, and of course, the original doll, Britney Spears. So make sure that you subscribe on your preferred streaming platform, whether it's Apple Music, Spotify, or even Ask Alexa. But we're going to get right to this, and once again, let's get to this. Enjoy, and with every episode of the original doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you do in fact see any snippets on any sort of platforms, please report them to the webmasters. My name is James Rodriguez Horton, and this is the original doll. <laughs> the original doll. All right, everyone, I would like to welcome you back to The Original Doll with James Rodriguez on The Original Doll. I unpackage music with the people who create it. And today we have songwriting producer Shepard Solomon. Shepard, thank you so much for joining us on The Original Doll. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. This is a lot of fun because what I think is really great about your work and going through your discography is You've worked with a ton of people in, in a variety of genres, which is amazing to me. That kind of is a testament to your talent and your ability to reach different markets and different countries. So mm. props to you on that. Yeah, um, well, I think it's because also, too, I started my career in England and uh, basically it came back to America. And, you know, I, I've always liked all kinds of music, so... To me, a good song is just a good song, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's go, let's rewind back. Now let's talk about this. How did music, how early in your life was music a part of you? When did music make its first impact on you? Uh, let me think about that. Um, I would say probably around, probably around, I would say 10, 11. But it really had the strongest impact, you know, in my junior high years. You know, I became infatuated with like British music and British bands. You know, um, mm -hmm. I would follow it very avidly. And I would actually, um, there's an interesting story, but um, I would, uh, 
go to the local uh, newsstand. This was actually at that time I was being raised in Coconut Grove, Florida. Do you know where that is? Coconut Grove? Um, not offhand, no. Okay, it's in Miami, Florida. It's a section okay. of Miami, Florida. And in an area of Coconut Grove, they had this newsstand um, that used to get every week smash hits. It was like the pop magazine from the UK, you know? And I used to go there every Friday and read about all the bands, you know, at that time. And uh, I think I, that was my, like, became my obsession, you know, with uh, mm -hmm. uh, especially a lot of British music. I was also into rock back then, a lot of ACDC, a lot of, you know, whatever was going on at the time, you know? So what was the first piece of music that you bought for yourself with your own money? Do you remember what that was? Like whether it was a 45 or a 12 inch? The first piece of music that I bought with my own money, let me think about that. Um, I would say the first music I bought with my own money would probably be um, Duran Duran's, was it third album, the one that had uh, the reflex? Yeah, it was uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. Yeah, Seven, seven and the Jagged Tiger. Is that, uh, that's the title. Ragged Tiger. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Ragged Tiger. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. So then let me ask you, because many people on the original dial have messaged me and said, you know, do you know when ultimately you've made a career being, you know, a songwriter, do you know early on? you know, what a songwriter is? Like, at what point did you learn about that aspect of it versus just being the consumer of the whole product? Well, actually, that's an interesting story because my father was in the music business, right? And he met, he had a very, uh, he had a nightclub in New York City called the Cafe Ogogo, which was in the 60s. And he managed art some artists that became, their songs became covered by other artists, you know? So he managed a guy named Fred Neal who wrote a song called Everybody's Talking. Do you know that mm -hmm. song? Oh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So when I grew up, they would be around the house and my dad had a little recording studio in the backyard. And, you know, um, I would learn about songs and publishing. You know, my dad had a little publishing company and, I knew about it, but actually at first I wasn't interested in songwriting. I, I kind of had a weird path, you know, um, but to keep it on track, um, I was more interested in kind of being in a band, you know, uh, you know, being in a band or maybe working at a record label. Actually, I was trying to do like summer internships at like, I did one at Atlantic Recording Studios on Broadway. Um, I, I, I worked with Ahmed Erdogan for like, well, kind of on, on, on an Ern, Erdogan and everybody who was kind of in Atlantic recording studios, I would do like nighttime shifts, you know, during the summer. And I was trying to get, I worked at Atlantic Records for six months, you know, trying to get into the record world. world. For a second, I wanted to work at a record label but then life took me in a very different path, you know? Mm -hmm. So but yes, I always knew about songwriting growing up because of what my father did, you know? Got it. Because I'm always, you know, I was amazed early on because I used to be one of those, I still am, a liner geek where I would buy 
the vinyl or the CD or anything and open it up and see who else was a part of this song because I knew it wasn't the person just on the cover that did that and I was surprised when so many of the listeners said I did not realize that you know pop star a didn't 100 write and produce on their own and then many people were like wait there's how's a songwriter different than a producer what's a top liner and that's what i love about this being able to talk to you all who are experts in this 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 field and kind of introduce that to other people because there's all sorts of fun stories behind these sometimes it's not so fun stories about how songs are made. right um but the great thing is when i was going through your discography i said man, you've touched upon so many different people. And we're going to go into, we're going to go into a lot of those because we have a ton of questions for you. I mean, I, I think that, oh, that's because of my musical upbringing, you know, it was so varied from living in New York, from living in Miami. And the whole thing was so varied, you know, to like loving, like how dance music, loving hip hop, loving rock, you know, I just loved it all really, you know? See, that's, and that's what I love. And I think that that's a testament to when I talk to different uh, guests on the original doll that many say, you know, I look at their discography and go, man, that's different. And then when I ask them about, you know, how music came to be, many of them were like, I listened to this, I listened to that, I knew this, you know what I mean? And it's never like, I only listened to Motown, that was it. It's usually like, I listened to Motown, then it was like Led Zeppelin and then Cyndi Lauper and it would go through all these different things. And then for me, it shows in, their ability to work songs in different genres at different generations yeah. too. So let's go back to what was your first cut? What was your first time that you wrote something and boom, it was you know recorded by somebody else? Uh, that happened in an interesting way. Um, basically uh, in the late 2000s, I was actually in a band and it was called Jonah. And we got a kind of development deal slash publishing deal with EMI Music, you know? And, uh, sorry, EMI Music Publishing. And uh, we were playing, you know, um, actually at that time we were from New York because we got together in New York, but we moved to Los Angeles, you know? and. you know, we were we were managed by a couple of different managers. One guy was was Crowded House's manager. I forgot his name, and another guy <laughs> managed Prince. Uh, who um, I forgot his name too. God, it was so long. Um, he was the president of Hollywood Records too. Do you do you know who I'm talking about? Bob Cavallo. That was his name. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His company managed us for like six months, and. Uh, you know, we we were kind of like an acoustic duo, singer-songwriter. You know, it was like my first teeth into like the whole co-writing with a lot of people, you know, because the publishing company was trying to get us to write more radio-friendly, just more, I guess, stronger material to try and get on the radio, right? Because the A&R guy at the time, we had a kind of development deal with Ron Fair, and he was asking for he loved the songs but he was trying to push us for what you may say bigger hit songs right and Mm -hmm. and we had a publisher at the time um who was uh actually to his 
uh, credit, <clears throat> it was Evan Lamberg, you know, and Evan Lamberg was one of my first fans, you know, um, and he really pushed us to, well, he was setting up a lot of co-writes, you know, with different songwriters and trying to get the best material possible. And basically, um, uh, that band <clears throat> kind of fell apart because we became disinterested after a while. I, I think I became disinterested because I just realized that I liked all kind of music and doing one style. The, the thought of representing one style of music every night and having to be that personality and do that day in and day out didn't appeal to me after a while. You know, I got, I wanted to do different types of music, you know? And so basically that publishing deal ended, but one of the collaborators that Evan Lamberg hooked me up with was a man named Wayne Cohn in New York City. And he basically had done, an artist that was big in Europe um, who Clive Davis signed. Uh, and I will think of his name. I can't remember his name, but, <laughs> but, but basically uh, he was like a sax player, like a blues jazz singer. Um, and he had like a huge hit in the UK and he was big in Europe at that time. And basically um, <clears throat> We hooked up, um, he had this little trashy studio like on near the, Brill, near the Brill building. It was like on 45th or something in New York City, you know, because mm -hmm. I was going back to New York a lot because I'm from New York. I was living in Los Angeles, but I really miss New York, you know, and um, basically he had a little studio on like, I think it was 46th, 45th and a little crappy studio with like a, you know, you're like looking at the brick wall th through the window, you know, and <laughs> and basically it's really like, it's very hardcore in New York. And we, uh, we wrote this song <clears throat> that, you know, we just started writing and the first song we wrote um, was this song called Just a Step From Heaven. And I would say that that's one of the first songs that I, it wasn't the first one, but the first kind of professional ones that I wrote with another artist in mind, you know? Mm -hmm. Like not even another artist in mind, but, but we knew it was gonna be a female, not me singing it, right? And basically we wrote this song and it was kind of like an R&B kind of in between like, British R&B, but America, it was somewhere in between. It was solely, but poppy. And at that time, Wayne Cohn was signed to Sony UK Publishing, you know? Mm -hmm. And this lady heard the song um, and she was the head of A&R at that time. And she played it for a man named Dennis Inglesby, who had a very popular company in the UK at that time called First Avenue Music, right? They were kind of like the stock Akin and Waterman of that time. They had tons of pop bands that they found, put together. They would have songwriters and producers write the songs. It was like the Motown of the UK, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and basically, um, uh, he heard the song and 
he recorded it. And I didn't even know he recorded it. It was interesting. And basically, um, I, I was t- told, like, l- let's say six months later, I was told, um, basically, this band called Eternal recorded your song. You can look them up, too. They were a British band in the UK called Eternal. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, um, and they sent me the copy, and it's the next single, you know? So basically, awesome. so the song comes out and it explodes in the UK. You know, I think it was like number three and number one airplay song for like three months, you know? Um, And the interesting thing is, is that I didn't have a publishing deal at that time, you know? Um, um, I didn't have a publishing deal at that time. And one of my good friends, who I became friends with in Los Angeles at that time was Greg Alexander from the New Radicals, you know? Oh, yes. Yep. And basically at that time, he wasn't signed to a deal. He kind of moved to England to find himself and get out of America and figure out what he wanted to do next. So I was having this hit in... uh, in, in England, and I was in New York at the time, and Greg said to me, you know what, you really should come here and speak to publishers here, you know, because uh, it's getting, it's much more presence here and much more cachet, you know, and uh, because I had met with, I guess, say Warner Chapel in New York, I had met with, what, you know, like three publishers. I had a lawyer at a time called, um, uh, Lauren Davies, who was Clive Davis's daughter, you know, and she she was a very funny woman, and uh, she hooked me up um, with some meetings, and you know the deals were okay but not fantastic. So th- this guy, my friend Greg Alexander, called me up and he said, "Come over here, stay at my house for three weeks, and let's go all around Europe and hang out in England for a week, you know, and go on meetings, you know." So. Uh, I went on five meetings with all kinds of, you know, all the publishers and it became like a huge bidding war for me, you know? And uh, basically there's one guy named Peter McCamley who had a different kind of thing in mind. He said, listen, you can write some good lyrics. You're obviously a talented songwriter. Why don't you come here for six months because there's so many bands that need someone like you at this time or track guys, et cetera, et cetera. Why don't you come here and we'll pitch you up, get you an apartment, blah, blah, blah. And then you'll, I'm going to set you up with a schedule to write with various producers, artists, you know? And uh, basically he was working for a company at the time called Rondor Music. Do you know Rondor Music? No, no. Okay, Rondor Music was owned by Herb Albert and Jerry Moss, who owned A&M Records, you know? And that Rondor Music was their publishing arm, you know? And they had offices, they were huge. They had like Brian Adams, Beach Boys, many big artists, you know? Um, Mm. And uh, basically, um, Peter McCamley, was the, the head of writer relations and at Rondor Music in the UK, 
you know? And he said, why don't you come to England and, you know, let's really dive in here and uh, have you writing, you know, because he, he believed in my ability as a writer. And uh, so we, so I said, do you know what? Mm. And it was actually less, it wasn't financially as much as the other deals, but I thought that he really had a good vision in mind. So we did that. And I mean, it was just total mayhem, you know? I mean, it was nonstop, you know? Well, and that was, this is one of those things that like a lot of the listeners have learned about because many people thought, okay, when you become a songwriter or even an artist for that matter, it's like, oh, you get this million dollars and then boom, you just start making money from there. We started learning, you know, over the years that people are like, no, there are certain requirements. There are certain things you need. If you get an advance, you need to pay that back. Like there's a, you know, set contract of saying expectations and everything. Absolutely. But, and that's basically all, I mean, there's a million and one ways to do a contract, right? But, you know, there's record and release, right? So you could sign a publishing deal and let's say you have to get let's say they put a clause in the deal that says you have to uh, get 400% songs recorded and released on major labels before you get to your next period, you know, your next advance, you know? So, and that really, if you co-write songs, that could mean six songs, eight songs, so that's how a lot of these companies, they prolong you into mm-hmm. these deals because if you have that cause and all you songwriters out there, be very careful of that because you could be in a period for eight to 10 years, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've known some horror stories, so make sure that's not in your contract, but basically, uh, you know, you could be in this. So yes, yes. and. Well- Sorry. Oh, and that was one of those things where it's like many, many of the guests have said, like, you know, take a look at that contract, really like push that number that they're giving you out of your mind of what you could have, like, look at the logistics. Is this possible? And, you know, many of them said, especially in the past 10 years that with like music leaking and things like that, they're like, everyone thinks it's great to have your demos leak, but you're not going to be able to recoup anything on that song. It becomes I think it was Lindy Robbins said it basically becomes poison. Like no one's going to touch that. So then it's back to the drawing board and board and do these things. But let me ask you this because we actually had a question from Jolie in Wales specifically about Eternal, just a step from heaven. She said, "Love the song so much. I still play it. It was amazing. Did you work Uh on any other songs for Eternal? And secondly, I've noticed that there was the radio mix." Do you get any say in mixes or radio edits of songs? How does that work for a songwriter? Do they get approval on anything if it's going to be cut for the radio? You know, I think it just depends really what your relationship is. I mean, sometimes I I co-produce songs. Sometimes I'm close to, you know, I think it just depends, you know, what, 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 what your relationship is with the artist and the A&R person. You know, and sometimes they'll call you and ask your opinion, you know, if they respect you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Mm-hmm. See, this this is good information. So we also have, oh, and for the first time listeners too, for every question that Shepard answers, we get items donated to charity. So we are able to help out women in domestic abuse shelters, sick children, oh, so many more. 
So yeah, so this is this is what's fun. And we have people, there was actually another question and it was about the radio edit, but it was for a different song. It was for Human Nature Cruel, oh. and which happened to be a platinum song in Australia. And this is actually from uh, Nancy from Adelaide. Love Cruel. I was wondering when you work on these songs, what has been the longest time from you creating the song to it being released? And did you know that Cruel was going to be released right, as soon as it was cut? Huh. Well, that's an interesting story. So um, basically, um, <clears throat> well, there was a guy um, at that time named Andrew Clipple. So Andrew Clipple was the producer for um, Human Nature in Australia. You know, he was like their music person. And at that time we were in LA and my publisher at that time set me up with a co-write with him. And, you know, I just went to his house and, you know, we wrote the song in like two hours and we both thought it felt really, there was just a nice feeling to it. The, the, you know, it kind of had this little thing kind of, um, I always was a big fan of that song, Ordinary World by Duran Duran. Do you know that oh, song? Such a good song, yep. Right, so, so that has always been one of my favorite pop songs ever. And uh, I always wanted to get that feeling, that kind of crying, emotional Roy Orbison kind of lilting kind of thing. And basically we wrote Cruel and after I finished, he was flipping out over it. And they, um, with Cruel, they, he cut it a month later and then it, beca it went to radio. Like it became their first single, like in two months, you know, and it went number one there, yeah. Well, and that's the, that's something else too, is how does it feel when you, you get a song, one of your songs is the lead single from a project? How different is that for you as a songwriter? versus, you know, third album deep or even album or third song deep in singles or an album cut. How different is that feeling when your song is chosen to lead off that new project? Well, I mean, I think that, um, I think that, you know, listen, when I first heard my first song on the radio in England, you know, and my whole entree into this, uh, it was very exciting, you know? It's very exciting to see people. And I've done a lot of traveling personally too, like all over the world to, you know, I spent a lot of time in Asia and, uh, and it's nice to see people singing and dancing to your music, you know? And reacting to your music in a visceral way, you know? Um, in a business that becomes political, complicated egos, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's a crazy industry to just see people getting into your music and you're moving people. I mean, I think that's the biggest, you know, joy of all, you know, to me. To me, the best part about the music business is the song, you know, how a song can affect people and life, you know. Um, now, of course, the financial aspect is nice when that song becomes a big song. It can help help your life and change your life. But 
always the feeling of a, an amazing song that just touches your heart. I even believe today that you can have all the TikTok, all these platforms, blah, 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 blah. But if you don't have a great artist and a great song, I think it's just, I think that's still the core of all of this, you know? It's the core of everything, you know? Is that song amazing? Does that artist touch your soul? You know, and yes, I do. It is an amazing feeling, you know, to to hear that song, you know, all over the world, you know? Love that, love that. And now we have- <laughs> I sound like I'm making these big, okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I love yeah. this. Well, cause the thing is, it's, I think what's what's interesting too is how it's one thing to have your song recorded by somebody else. It's another thing to have it released as like a lead single. It's another thing to see it performed. It's another thing for to be in a live venue and hear people singing your song back or at a club, yeah. people dancing to it. So I can't worry about that, but uh, oh, well, go ahead. We'll be back with Shepard Solomon tomorrow, where we're going to be releasing more episodes about S Club 7. Spice Girls, and of course, the original doll, Britney Spears. And what I wanted to do was make sure that we spent time on the separate sections in his career. Because what's been interesting is, for those who have been, let's say, Britney Spears fans for a long time, you knew that Britney Spears had a love of 90, 90s music just like the rest of us. You know, she's mentioned her love and always the eternal love she has for Mariah Carey. You know, there's discussion of her love of TLC, SWV, all of these people, Janet Jackson, Madonna, and so many others, even from the 80s to 90s. And I think it's important to see where some of these songwriters come from to begin with and who they've worked with. Now, what I want to talk about is we're going to be talking about the song Stripped and Touch of My Hand, both Shepard worked on. Touch of My Hand was, of course, for Britney Spears and released by Britney Spears. But we're going to talk about those songs and the influences that Shepard Solomon had from his creation of the songs to the release of the songs. So be sure to follow me on your preferred streaming. Apple Podcast is the best. You could do Spotify, Alexa, anything else. But my name is James Rodriguez Horton. Follow me on socials. Instagram, the.original.doll. Twitter, at James Rodriguez. R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. And TikTok, at TikTok, at the James Rodriguez. R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. My name is James Rodriguez Horton. This is The Original Doll. The Original Doll.